49. What must be done? Excerpt, Hans Hermann Hopper, Ph.D. Hans Hermann Hopper is an Austrian school economist, a libertarian and anarcho-capitalist philosopher, and professor emeritus of economics at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Strategy. Stopping the statist disease How can the state and the statist disease be stopped? Now I will come to my strategic considerations. First off, three fundamental insights or guiding principles must be recognized. First, that the protection of private property and of law, justice, and law enforcement is essential to any human society. But there is no reason whatsoever why this task must be taken on by one single agency, by a monopolist. As a matter of fact, it is precisely the case that as soon as you have a monopolist taking on this task, he will with necessity destroy justice and render us defenseless against foreign as well as domestic invaders and aggressors. It is then one's ultimate goal which one has to keep in mind is the demonopolization of protection and justice. Protection, security, defense, law, order, and arbitration in conflicts can and must be supplied competitively, that is, entry into the field of being a judge must be free. Second, because a monopoly of protection is the root of all evil, any territorial expansion of such a monopoly is per se evil too. Every political centralization must be on principle grounds rejected. In turn, every attempt at political decentralization, segregation, separation, secession and so forth, must be supported. The third basic insight is that a democratic protection monopoly in particular must be rejected as a moral and economic perversity. Majority rule and private property protection are incompatible. The idea of democracy must be ridiculed. It is nothing else but mob rule parading as justice. To be labeled a democrat must be considered the worst of all possible compliments. This does not mean that one may not participate in democratic policies. I will come to that a little bit later. But one must use democratic means only for defensive purposes. That is, one may use an anti-democratic platform to be elected by an anti-democratic constituency to implement anti-democratic, that is, anti-egalitarian and pro-private property, policies. Or, to put it differently, a person is not honorable because he is democratically elected. If anything, this makes him a suspect. Despite the fact that a person has been elected democratically, he may still be a decent and honorable man. We have heard one before. From these principles we now come to the problem of application. The basic insights, that is, monopolized protection. A state will inevitably become an aggressor and lead to defenselessness. And political centralization and democracy are means of extensifying and intensifying exploitation and aggression. While these basic insights give us a general direction in the goal, they're obviously not yet sufficient to define our actions and tell us how to get there. How can the goal of demonopolized protection and justice possibly be implemented given the present circumstances of centralized, almost world democracy, as at least temporarily our starting point from which we have to begin? Let me try to develop an answer to this question by elaborating first in what respect the problem, and also the solution to it, has changed in the course of the last 150 years, that is, since around the middle of the 19th century. 
Top-down reform. Converting the king the problem up to 1914 was comparatively small and the possible solution was comparatively easy then. And today as we will see, matters are more difficult and the solution is far more complicated. By mid-19th century, in Europe as well as in the United States, not only was the degree of political centralization far less pronounced than it is now, the Southern War of Independence had not yet taken place, and neither Germany nor Italy existed as unified states. But in particular, the age of mass democracy had hardly begun at this time. In Europe, after the defeat of Napoleon, countries were still ruled by kings and princes, and elections and parliaments played small roles and were in addition restricted to extremely small numbers of major property owners. Similarly, in the United States, government was run by small aristocratic elites, and the vote was restricted by severe property requirements. After all, only those people who have something to be protected should be running those agencies that do the protection. 150 or even 100 years ago, only the following thing was essentially necessary in order to solve the problem. It would have been necessary only to force the king to declare that from now on, every citizen would be free to choose his own protector, and pledge allegiance to any government that he wanted. That is, the king would no longer presume to be anyone's protector, unless this person had asked him, and met his prize that the king would have asked for such service. Now what would have happened in this case? What would have happened, let's say, if the Austrian emperor had made such a declaration in 1900? Let me try to give a brief sketch or scenario of what I think would likely have happened in this situation. First, everyone, upon this declaration, would have regained his unrestricted right to self-defense, and would have been free to decide if he wanted more or better protection than that afforded by self-defense, and if so, where and from whom to secure this protection. Most people in this situation undoubtedly would have chosen to take advantage of the division of labor, and rely, in addition to self-defense, also on specialized protectors. Second, on the lookout for protectors. Almost everyone would have looked to persons or agencies who own or are able to acquire the means to assure the task of protection, that is, who have themselves a stake in the to-be-protected territory in the form of substantial property holdings, and who possess an established reputation as reliable, prudent, honorable, and just. It is safe to say that no one would have considered an elected parliament up to this task. Instead, almost everyone would have turned for help to one or more of three places, either the king himself, who is now no longer a monopolist, or a regional or local noble, magnate, or aristocrat, or a regional, national, or even international operating insurance company. Obviously, the king himself would fulfill these requirements that I just mentioned, and many people would have voluntarily chosen him as their protector. At the same time, however, many people also would have seceded from the king. Of these, a large proportion would have likely turned to various regional nobles or magnates, who are now natural instead of hereditary nobility. And on a smaller territorial scale these local nobles would be able to offer the same advantages as protectors as the king himself would be able to offer. And this shift to regional protectors would bring about a significant decentralization in the organization and structure of the security industry. 
and this decentralization would only be reflective of, and in accordance with, private or subjective protection interests. That is, the centralization tendency that I mentioned before has also led to an over-centralization of the protection business. Lastly, nearly everyone else, especially in the cities, would have turned for protection to commercial insurance companies, such as fire insurers. Insurance and private property protection are obviously very closely related matters. Better protection leads to lower insurance payoffs. And by insurers entering the protection market, quickly protection contracts, rather than unspecified promises, would have become the standard product form in which protection would have been offered. Further, by virtue of the nature of insurance, the competition and cooperation between various protection insurers would promote the development of universal rules of procedure, evidence, conflict resolution, and arbitration. As well, it would promote the simultaneous homogenization and dehomogenization of the population into various classes of individuals with different group risks regarding their property protection, and accordingly, different protection insurance premiums. All systematic and predictable income and wealth redistribution between different groups within the population as it existed under monopolistic conditions would be immediately eliminated. And this would of course make for peace. Most importantly, the nature of protection and defense would have been fundamentally altered. Under monopolistic conditions, there is only one protector. Whether it is monarchical or democratic makes no difference in this respect. A government is invariably conceived of as defending and protecting a fixed and contiguous territory. Yet this feature is the outcome of a compulsory protection monopoly. With the abolition of a monopoly, this feature would immediately disappear as highly unnatural or even artificial. There might have been a few local protectors who defended just one contiguous territory. But there would have also been other protectors, such as the king or insurance agencies, whose protection territory consisted of widespread patchworks of discontiguous bits and pieces and stretches. And the borders of every government would be in constant flux. In cities in particular, it would not be more unusual for two neighbors to have different protection agencies than it is to have different fire insurers. This patchwork structure of protection and defense improves protection. Monopolistic, contiguous defense presumes that the security interests of the entire population living in a given territory are somehow homogeneous. That is, that all people in a given territory have the same sort of defense interests. But this is a highly unrealistic and actually untrue assumption. Actually, people's security needs are highly heterogeneous. People may just own property in one location. Or numerous territorially widely dispersed locations. Or they may be largely self-sufficient, or only dependent on a very few people in their economic dealings. Or on the other hand, they may be deeply integrated into the market and dependent economically on thousands and thousands of people strewn out over large territories. The patchwork structure of the security industry would merely reflect this reality of highly diversified security needs that exist for various people. As well, this structure would in turn stimulate the development of a corresponding protective weaponry. Rather than producing and developing weapons and instruments of large-scale bombing, Instruments would be developed for protecting small-scale territories without collateral damage.
In addition, because all interregional redistribution of income and wealth would be eliminated in a competitive system, the patchwork structure would also offer the best assurance of interterritorial peace. The likelihood and the extent of interterritorial conflict would be reduced if there are patchworks. And because every foreign invader, so to speak, would almost instantly, even if he invaded only a small piece of land, run into the opposition and military and economic counterattacks by several independent protecting agencies, likewise the danger of foreign invasions would be reduced. Indirectly, it is already clear at least partially how and why it has become so much more difficult to reach this solution in the course of the last 150 years. Let me point out some of the fundamental changes that have occurred which make all of these problems far bigger. First, it is no longer possible to carry out the reforms from the top down. Classical liberals, during the old monarchical days, could and did in fact frequently think and could actually realistically believe in simply converting the king to their view, and ask him to abdicate his power, and everything else would have almost automatically fallen into place. Today, the state's protection monopoly is considered public instead of private property, and government rule is no longer tied to any particular individual, but to specified functions, exercised by unnamed or anonymous individuals as members of a democratic government. Hence, the one or few men conversion strategy does no longer work. It doesn't matter if one converts a few top government officials, the president and a handful of senators, because, within the rules of democratic government, no single individual has the personal power of abdicating the government's monopoly of protection. Kings had this power, presidents don't. The president can only resign from his position, only to be taken over by someone else. But he cannot dissolve the government protection monopoly, because supposedly the people own the government, and not the president himself. Under democratic rule then, the abolition of the government's monopoly of justice and protection requires either that a majority of the public and of their elected representatives would have to declare the government's protection monopoly and accordingly all compulsory taxes abolished. Or even more restrictive, that literally no one would vote and the voter turnout would be zero. Only in this case could the democratic protection monopoly be said to be effectively abolished. But this would essentially mean that it was impossible to ever rid ourselves of an economic and moral perversion. Because nowadays it is a given that everyone, including the mob, does participate in politics, and it is inconceivable that the mob should ever, in its majority or even in its entirety, should renounce or abstain from exercising its right to vote, which is nothing else than exercising the opportunity to loot the property of others. Moreover, even if one assumes against all odds that this was achieved, the problems do not end. Because another fundamental sociological truth in the age of modern egalitarian mass democracy is the almost complete destruction of natural elites. The king could abdicate his monopoly and the security needs of the public still would have been almost automatically taken care of because there existed for mostly the king himself. And also regional and local nobles and major entrepreneurial personalities, a clearly visible and established natural, voluntarily acknowledged elite and a multi-layered structure of hierarchies and rank orders to which people could turn with their desire to be protected. The disappearance of natural elites today, 
After less than one century of mass democracy, there exists no such natural elites and social hierarchies to which one could immediately turn for protection. Natural elites and hierarchical social orders and organizations. That is people and institutions commanding an authority and respect independent of the state, are even more intolerable and unacceptable to a democrat and more incompatible with the democratic spirit of egalitarianism than they were a threat to any king or to any prince. And because of that, under the democratic rules of the game, all independent authorities, all independent institutions have been systematically wiped or diminished through economic measures to insignificance. Today, no one person or institution outside of government itself possesses genuine national or even regional authority. Rather than people of independent authority, we now merely have an abundance of people who are prominent, sports and movie stars, pop stars, and of course, politicians. But these people, while they may be able to set trends and shape fashions, do not possess any such thing as natural personal social authority. This is true in particular of politicians. They may be great stars now, every day they are on TV and the subject of public debate, but this is almost entirely due to the fact that they are a part of the current state apparatus with its monopolistic powers. Once this monopoly was dissolved, these stars of politics would become non-entities, because in real life they are mostly nothing, hacks, and half-wits. And only democracy allows them to rise to these elevated positions. Left to their own devices, left to their own personal achievements, they are, with almost no exception, complete nobodies. Put bluntly, once the democratic government, Congress, had declared that from now on everyone would be free to choose his own judge and protector, such that he still can but no longer must choose the government for protection, who in his right mind would ever choose them. That is, the current members of Congress and the federal government, who would choose them voluntarily as their judge and protector. To raise this question is to answer it. Kings and princes possessed real authority. There was coercion involved, no question whatsoever, but they received a significant amount of voluntary support. In contrast, democratic politicians are generally held in contempt, even by their own mob constituency. But then there is also no one else to whom one might turn for protection. Local and regional politicians are basically posing the same sort of problem, and with the abolition of their monopoly powers, they obviously do not offer an attractive alternative to this problem either. Nor are there any great entrepreneurial personalities standing in the wings. And insurance companies in particular, have become almost entirely creatures of the egalitarian democratic state, and thus appear as little trustworthy as anybody else to take over this particularly important task of protection and justice. Thus, if one did today what the king could have done a hundred years ago, there would be the immediate danger of having in fact social chaos, or of anarchy, in the bad sense. People would indeed at least temporarily become highly vulnerable and defenseless. So then the question becomes, is there no way out? Let me sum up the answer in advance. Yes, but rather than by means of the top-down reform, one strategy must now be that of a bottom-up revolution. And instead of one battle, on a single front, a liberal libertarian revolution now will have to involve many battles on many fronts. That is, 
We want guerrilla warfare rather than conventional warfare. The role of intellectuals before explaining this answer is another step in the direction of this goal. A second sociological fact has to be recognized. The change of the role of intellectuals, of education, and of ideology. As soon as the protection agency becomes a territorial monopolist, that is, a state, it is turned from a genuine protector into a protection racket. And in light of resistance on the part of the victims of this protection racket, a state is in need of legitimacy, of intellectual justification for what it does. The more the state turns from a protector to a protection racket, that is, with every additional increase in taxes and regulation, the greater does this need for legitimacy become. In order to assure correct statist thinking, a protection monopolist will employ its privileged position as the protection racket to quickly establish an education monopoly. Even during the 19th century under decidedly undemocratic monarchical conditions, education, at least on the level of elementary schooling and university education, was already largely monopolistically organized and compulsorily funded. And it was largely from the ranks of the royal government teachers and professors. That is, those people who had been employed as intellectual bodyguards of kings and princes, from where the monarchical rule and the privileges of kings and nobles was ideologically undermined and instead egalitarian ideas were promoted, in the form of democracy and socialism. This was with good reason from the point of view of the intellectuals. Because democracy and socialism in fact multiply the number of educators and intellectuals, and this expansion of the system of government public education in turn has led to an ever greater flood of intellectual waste and pollution. The price of education, as the price of protection and justice, has gone up dramatically under monopolistic administration, all the while the quality of education, just as the quality of justice, has continuously declined. Today, we are as unprotected as we are uneducated. Without the continued existence of the democratic system and of publicly funded education and research, however, most current teachers and intellectuals would be unemployed or their income would fall to a small fraction of its present level. Instead of researching the syntax of abonics, the love life of mosquitoes, or the relationship between poverty and crime for $100 grand a year, they would research the science of potato growing or the technology of gas pump operation for $20 grand. The monopolized education system is by now as much of a problem as the monopolized protection and justice system. In fact, government education and research and development is the central instrument by which the state protects itself from public resistance. Today, intellectuals are as important or even more so from the point of view of the government, for the preservation of the status quo, than are judges, policemen, and soldiers. And just as one cannot convert the democratic system from the political top down, so it also cannot be expected that this conversion will come down from within the established system of public education and public universities. This system cannot be reformed. It is impossible for liberal libertarians to infiltrate and take over the public education system, as the Democrats and Socialists could when they replaced the monarchists. From the point of view of classical liberalism, the entire system of publicly, or tax-funded education must go, root and branch. And with this conviction, 
it is obviously impossible for anyone to make a career within these conditions. I will not ever be able to become the president of the university. My views bar me from making a career like this. Now this is not to say that education and intellectuals do not play a role in bringing about a libertarian revolution. To the contrary, as I explained before, everything hinges ultimately on the question of whether or not we will succeed in delegitimizing and exposing as an economic and moral perversity, democracy and the democratic monopoly of justice and protection. This is obviously nothing but an ideological battle. But it would be wrong-headed to assume that official academia will be of any help in this endeavor. On the government dole, educators and intellectuals will tend to be statists. Intellectual ammunition and ideological direction and coordination can only come from outside of established academia. From centers of intellectual resistance, from an intellectual counterculture outside and independent of, and in fundamental opposition to the government monopoly of protection as well as of education, such as the Mises Institute. A bottom-up revolution at last to the detailed explanation of the meaning of this bottom-up revolutionary strategy. For this, let me turn to my earlier remarks about the defensive use of democracy, that is, the use of democratic means for non-democratic, libertarian pro-private property ends. Two preliminary insights I have already reached here. First, from the impossibility of a top-down strategy, it follows that one should expend little or no energy, time, and money on nationwide political contests, such as presidential elections and also not on contests for central government, in particular, less effort on senatorial races than on house races, for instance. Second, from the insight into the role of intellectuals, in the preservation of the current system, the current protection racket, it follows that one should likewise expend little or no energy, time, or money trying to reform education and academia from the inside. By endowing free enterprise or private property chairs within the established university system, for instance, one only helps to lend legitimacy to the very idea that one wishes to oppose. The official education and research institutions must be systematically defunded and dried up. And to do so all support of intellectual work, as an essential task of this overall task in front of us, should of course be given to institutions and centers determined to do precisely this. The reasons for both of these pieces of advice are straightforward. Neither the population as a whole nor all educators and intellectuals in particular are ideologically completely homogeneous. And even if it is impossible to win a majority for a decidedly anti-democratic platform on a nationwide scale, there appears to be no insurmountable difficulty in winning such a majority in sufficiently small districts and for local or regional functions within the overall democratic government structure. In fact, there seems to be nothing unrealistic in assuming that such majorities exist at thousands of locations. That is, locations dispersed all over the country but not evenly dispersed. Likewise, even though the intellectual class must be by and large regarded as natural enemies of justice and protection. There exists at various locations isolated anti-intellectual intellectuals, and as the Mises Institute proves, it is very well possible to assemble these isolated figures around an intellectual center and give them unity and strength, and a national or even an international audience.
But what then? Everything else falls almost automatically from the ultimate goal. Which must be kept permanently in mind, in all of one's activities, the restoration from the bottom up of private property and the right to property protection, the right to self-defense, to exclude or include, and to freedom of contract. And the answer can be broken down into two parts. First, what to do within these very small districts, where a pro-private property candidate and anti-majoritarian personality can win. And second, how to deal with the higher levels of government, and especially with the central federal government. First, as an initial step, and I'm referring now to what should be done on the local level, the first central plank of one's platform should be, one must attempt to restrict the right to vote on local taxes, in particular on property taxes and regulations, to property and real estate owners. Only property owners must be permitted to vote, and their vote is not equal, but in accordance with the value of the equity owned, and the amount of taxes paid. That is, similar to what Lou Rockwell already explained has happened in some places in California. Further, all public employees, teachers, judges, policemen, and all welfare recipients, must be excluded from voting on local taxes and local regulation matters. These people are being paid out of taxes and should have no say whatsoever how high these taxes are. With this platform one cannot of course win everywhere. You cannot win in Washington, D.C. With a platform like this, but I dare say that in many locations this can be easily done. The locations have to be small enough and have to have a good number of decent people. Consequently, local taxes and rates as well as local tax revenue will inevitably decrease. Property values and most local incomes would increase whereas the number and payment of public employees would fall. Now, and this is the most decisive step, the following thing must be done, and always keep in mind that I am talking about very small territorial districts, villages. In this government funding crisis which breaks out once the right to vote has been taken away from the mob, as a way out of this crisis, all local government assets must be privatized. An inventory of all public buildings. And on the local level that is not that much, schools. Firehouses, police stations, courthouses, roads, and so forth, and then property shares or stock should be distributed to the local private property owners in accordance with the total lifetime amount of taxes, property taxes, that these people have paid. After all, it is theirs, they paid for these things. These shares should be freely tradable, sold and bought, and with this local government would essentially be abolished. If it were not for the continued existence of higher superior levels of government, this village or city would now be a free or liberated territory. What would consequently happen to education and more importantly, what would happen to property protection and justice? On the small local level, we can be as certain, or even more so than we could have been 100 years ago about what would have happened if the king abdicated. That what would happen is roughly this. All material resources that were previously devoted to these functions, schools, police stations, courthouses, still exist, and so does the manpower. The only difference is that they are now privately owned, or temporarily unemployed in the case of public employees. 
under the realistic assumption that there continues to be a local demand for education and protection and justice, the schools, police stations, and courthouses will be still used for the very same purposes. And many former teachers, policemen, and judges would be rehired or resume their former position on their own account as self-employed individuals, except that they would be operated or employed by local, big shots, or elites who own these things, all of whom are personally known figures. Either as for-profit enterprises, or as, and what seems to be more likely, some mixture of charitable and economic organization. Local, big shots, frequently provide public goods out of their own private pocket, and they obviously have the greatest interest in the preservation of local justice and peace. And this is all easy enough to see to work for schools and policemen, but what about judges and justice? Recall that the root of all evil is compulsory monopolization of justice, that is one person says this is right. Accordingly judges must be freely financed, and free entry into judgeship positions must be assured. Judges are not elected by vote, but chosen by the effective demand of justice seekers. Also don't forget that on the small local level under consideration, one is talking actually about a demand for one or very few judges only. Whether this or these judges are then employed by the private courthouse association or stock company, or are self-employed individuals who rent these facilities or offices. It should be clear that only a handful of local people, and only widely known and respected local personalities, that is, members of the natural local elite, would have any chance whatsoever of being so selected as judges of local peace. Only as members of the natural elite will their decision possess any authority and become enforceable. And if they come up with judgments that are considered to be ridiculous, they will be immediately displaced by other local authorities that are more respectable. If you proceed along these lines on the local level, of course, it cannot be avoided that one will come into direct conflict with the upper and especially the federal level of government power. How to deal with this problem? Wouldn't the federales simply crush any such attempt? They would surely like to. But whether or not they can actually do so is an entirely different question, and to recognize this, it is only necessary to recognize that the members of the governmental apparatus always represent, even under conditions of democracy, merely a tiny proportion of the total population. And even smaller is the proportion of central government employees. This implies that a central government cannot possibly enforce its legislative will, or perverted law, upon the entire population unless it finds widespread local support and cooperation in doing so. This becomes particularly obvious if one imagines a large number of free cities or villages as I described them before. It is practically impossible, manpower-wise, as well as from a public relations standpoint, to take over thousands of territorially widely dispersed localities and impose direct federal rule on them. Without local enforcement, by compliant local authorities, the will of the central government is not much more than hot air. Yet this local support and cooperation is precisely what needs to be missing. To be sure, so long as the number of liberated communities is still small, matters seem to be somewhat dangerous. However, even during this initial phase in the liberation struggle, one can be quite confident. 
It would appear to be prudent during this phase to avoid a direct confrontation with the central government and not openly denounce its authority or even abjure the realm. Rather, it seems advisable to engage in a policy of passive resistance and non-cooperation. One simply stops to help in the enforcement in each and every federal law. One assumes the following attitude, such are your rules, and you enforce them. I cannot hinder you, but I will not help you either, as my only obligation is to my local constituents. Consistently applied, no cooperation, no assistance whatsoever on any level, the central government's power would be severely diminished or even evaporate. And in light of the general public opinion, it would appear highly unlikely that the federal government would dare to occupy a territory whose inhabitants did nothing else than trying to mind their own business. Waco, a tiny group of freaks, is one thing. But to occupy, or to wipe out a significantly large group of normal, accomplished, upstanding citizens is quite another, and quite a more difficult thing. Once the number of implicitly seceded territories has reached a critical mass, and every success in one little location promotes and feeds on the next one, it will become inevitably further radicalized to a nationwide municipalization movement, with explicitly secessionist local policies and openly and contemptuously displayed non-compliance with federal authority. And it is in this situation then, when the central government will be forced to abdicate its protection monopoly and the relationship between the local authorities that re-emerge and the central authorities who are about to lose their power, can be put on a purely contractual level, and one might regain the power to defend one's own property again.